And I just want to echo, as you can turn your Bibles to Psalm 107. Uh, I was able to listen to Hanaro's message, and man, he just did such a great job. Um, so really thankful for you. And as we were praying before the sermon, and Bo was praying um, during pastoral prayer, something that hit me is I think the greatest gift, though, is, um, is our church um, and your hunger and thirst for uh, for good, solid teaching. Um, that's, that means all, uh, that means more than I could ever say that you guys want the Word of God. You don't want uh, somebody to get up there and tell you some amazing things about themselves or their own stories, but you want God's Word. Um, so that's the greatest thing, and um, it makes preaching a joy. Uh, so Psalm 107, uh, in our liturgy guide, the whole psalm didn't uh, fit on the inside page. So there's a page number on there. And if you haven't gotten an LSB, a Legacy Standard Bible, which is basically the NASB 95 with a couple updates, very similar to that. We have, we should have some here. Uh, come talk to one of us after we'll get you one. Uh, but there's a page number on there as well. Uh, this morning, this morning, we're going to be reminded from Psalm 107, of two things. That God is good and that his loving kindness doesn't run out. We have a full psalm before us, so we're just going to dive right into it. The psalmist opens up Psalm 107, verse 1, with a call to pray. So would you look at verse 1 with me? He says this, Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. So let's pray before we walk through the rest of the psalm together. Father, I praise you that as Bo prayed, we have good news this morning. That what what the God-man Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago has changed everything and that your mercies are new for us this morning because of what he did in history, because of what was planned before all time to redeem a people for yourself, for your glory. And God, I ask this morning as we walk through this psalm that we would give you thanks and praise because you're good because your loving kindness endures forever, and because you have redeemed a people for your own name's sake, would you encourage us and refresh us in the gospel and what you have done for sinners? We pray this all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 So first in Psalm 107, the psalmist opens up with a call to praise in verses 1 through 3. Now, before we really dive into Psalm 107, uh, the way that the Psalms have been composed, the Psalm directly before sheds a lot of light on what's going on in Psalm 107. Psalm 106 was the very end of book 4 of the Psalms. If you remember, we've uh, mentioned how the book of Psalms is a bunch of different songs for the people of Israel that were compiled together into five different books. And these were the, this was the hymnal of the ancient people of Israel as they would praise God. And the context of Psalm 106, the end of book four, is exile 
and unfaithfulness. Psalm 106 details all the failings of Israel. How they worshipped idols, a golden calf, after God brought them out of Egypt. How they forgot God's word as he was faithful to them. How they even got to a point where they were sacrificing their own children like the surrounding nations. And because of that, because of all of their unfaithfulness to God, they were to be exiled and cast out of their land. And Psalm 106 ends with the request in verse 47. I'll read it for you. It says this, Save us, O Yahweh, our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and revel in your praise. And book four of the Psalms ends. Imagine, imagine to make this personal, imagine a recounting of every trial and failing you've ever had. All the ways you've sinned against God, all the hardships you've been through and how you responded in the midst of them. Then the offering up of a prayer, and then it's the end. How will God respond? How will things go on? What's going to happen next? Then Psalm 107 comes, and with it the final book of the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms is going to end with five songs together that are called the Hallelujah Songs, which just over and over again praise God and say Hallelujah, Hallelujah for all that He has done. But the question is, how do we get from Israel's failings to praising God for all of these things? And Psalm 107 comes onto the scene and instructs us how people can go on. How, we're left wondering, will all these things end? Well, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 107, he breaks in with a call to praise. Let's read verses 1 through 3 together. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. Let the redeemed of Yahweh say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. Verse 3, and gathered from the lands, from east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So the psalmist comes on to the scene and he says, now let's give thanks to God. Why? For Yahweh is good. For his loving kindness, it endures forever. Because, the psalmist says, he redeems people. And verse 3, we have the specifics of how he has done this because he has gathered his people back to himself. The prayer that Israel offered up, bring us back to the land. We've sinned against you, but bring us back. It's actually fulfilled. And as we'll see as we walk through, it's not fulfilled in all the fullness that it will one day be for the people of God, but he was faithful in bringing people from east and west and north and south back to himself. And the rest of the psalm is going to break out into two sections that have to do with giving thanks to God. We are to give thanks to God both for what he has done in history and for what God can do. The psalmist says God is good 
His loving kindness never runs out. He redeems people and he always comes back for his own. Therefore, let the redeemed of the Lord praise him. So first, let's talk about, let's look at what the Lord has done. Let's, let's look on uh, these verses from verse 4 through 32. Let's look at praising the Lord for what he has done. Before we get into that large chunk of scripture, it's really helpful to break it out this way. The psalmist gives us four pictures of God's steadfast love. We're to praise God for what he has done, and what he has done is in four different scenes shown his steadfast love. And that word, loving kindness, or steadfast love, it's it's translated in the ESV, it's in the Hebrew, it's hesed, and it speaks of God's covenant love. It speaks of his promises that he always keeps. You see, the way that God shows his love is by never breaking his love. The way that he shows his love is by bringing us into something that actually has always existed and will go on forever. And there is a sandwich of these four different pictures uh, that we see, okay? So uh, commentators call it a chiasm, which it comes from the Greek word chi, or letter chi, which is an X, okay? And what that means is it's a mirror. But if you're like, what are you talking about? Then think of it like, how many of you guys have ever been to South Coast Deli? Yeah? Okay, if you haven't, then, oh, I see the hand in the back. Um, <laughs> If you haven't, uh, excellent sandwiches, but that's not really the point. What we have here is a mirror, a sandwich. And what we have at the, at the ends is God's providence, God's faithful love over both the earth and the sea. And then in between those two things, what we have is God's grace towards sinners. And these things reflect one another. It's a sandwich put together. So we see his providence over earth and sea, and then in the middle we see his great salvation for sinners. What we see in that is that God saves those who can't save themselves because of their human limitations, and God saves those who can't save themselves because they're sinners. We see God's salvation from beginning to end. And each scene has the same pattern with one point. The point is this, we have a reason to praise God. And I want you to know that this morning, you have a reason to praise God, and maybe you need to be reminded of that. The way that each scene flows is this, there is a trouble, and the trouble worsens, until the point that there is a cry out to God. And then there is a deliverance, followed by a call to praise. So we have four scenes that show whatever our trouble is, God is able to redeem. And I want you to know this isn't simply a teaching. It's, it's an announcement to every needy sinner this morning. That's how this psalm is meant to function. Not to say, oh, those are some good thoughts about God, but it's a beckoning. It's a call for the redeemed of the Lord to say so. And for those who need redemption to find it in this God. So God has brought back his own people across every scene. 
people should cry out, remember, recognize, and give thanks to Yahweh. And the first scene we see is this. God saves thirsty, hungry, wandering exiles. Verses 4 and 5. They wandered in the wilderness along the way of the wasteland. They did not find an inhabited city. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Have you ever been truly thirsty? I think I've probably been truly thirsty once in my life, but I would constantly say that I'm dying of thirst. I remember two-a-days back in my glory days of playing JV football <laughs> in, in the heat of L.A. County, and I, I realized reflecting that if you have lived in this area of the Central Coast for over two years, we've all become wimps when it comes to the weather uh, because it doesn't hardly ever exceed 90 degrees. But I remember in those days of two-day football practice being so thirsty. And back then, it was like, uh, they probably can't do this anymore, but it's like the coaches would put off get, being able to get water, you know? Like, you don't need water yet. No, run another lap. Do more. Like, it was a punishment also that you can't get water, and you need to be better without water. And I remember the feeling of just, you call it cotton mouth, right? Because it just feels like your mouth is full of cotton balls, and like, you probably can't go on if you don't get a drink of water. And that for, for us was something voluntary that we volunteered for. But for the people of Israel, they're wandering through the desert wastelands. And there isn't just a water fountain across the way. They need to come upon water. They need water to be opened up from a, from a rock. The psalmist here is describing it's either the early exodus or it's Israel's uh, it's Israel's exile. But either way, what we have is people who are fainting, people who are hungry, who have nowhere to go. But then, in the midst of that, in the midst of their circumstances, they cry out to Yahweh, and He delivers them. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Then they cried out to Yahweh in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. So what do we learn here? That these people get thirsty and thirsty and they're fainting and almost dying, but then they cry out to Yahweh? Well, Spurgeon, the great Spurgeon, in observing this verses, he, he says we have something to learn here in these people's problems. He says they are hard-pressed. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Why did they not do so before? Because people do not begin to pray to God as long as they have any hope. But when all hope is gone, then comes the first real, living, agonizing cry to heaven. And no sooner is that heard than God answers it. The people are wandering through the desert, and they finally get to a point that they say, if God doesn't do something, I'm going to die. I have no hope in myself. Because of their human limitations, they can't produce water for themselves. They can't produce food for themselves. And so they get to a place where they are utterly desperate, and then they cry out to God 
And what does God do? He answers them. He delivers them. Therefore, if God does that kind of a thing, what should we do in response? Verses 8 and 9, Therefore, let them give thanks to Yahweh for his loving kindness and for his wondrous deeds to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Yahweh hears the cries of his people and he answers them. Are you hungry, thirsty, wandering? Well, as one commentator reminds us of what Jesus said of himself, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the giver of living water. That he is the way. Do you realize there is no bread, water, or way other than the Lord Jesus? And not just about Jesus, and we'll get into the work that he's done, and he is the creator of all things, but let's just start, let's just start with this question. Have you had food to eat this week? and water to drink, and a place to lay your head? If so, you truly do have a reason to praise God. That's how the psalmist opens. He delivered them. He supplied their food. He supplied their water. He miraculously did it, but for so many of us, we just assume that we provide those things for ourselves. Well, we have a reason to praise God for his great provision for us. And not only does God save those who, because of their creaturely limitations, can't provide for themselves, but he also saves those who don't deserve help. Let's look at the next scene and see that God saves sinners who are slaves. Verses 10 and 12. There were those who inhabited darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and irons, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he subdued their heart with labor. They stumbled and there was none to help. The psalmist opens this next scene by describing the condition of these people. They are inhabitants of darkness. It's as it were, they're dwelling in a dungeon. They're in the shadow of death, ready to die. They're prisoners in affliction and in irons. And once again, it's either early in Israel's history or in this exile. But as you will find, if you're reading the Bible consistently, Israel's history repeats itself. They they are slaves, but then they're freed, but then they become slaves once again. But God is going to deliver them. But we learned the cause of their slavery. It wasn't just that they were oppressed, though they were. The cause is that they had rebelled against the words of God and they had spurned his counsel. You see, Israel was rescued out of Egypt. And then, only once he rescued them, only once he brought them through the seas, only once he delivered them from the hands of their enemy, He then gave them the Ten Commandments. They were told not to be like other nations. They were given the privilege of God's revelation. Do you ever think about that? Among all the nations, this one small nation was given the privilege of having God's word. 
and they spurned it. They rebelled against God, and that's why they became slaves, because of their own sin. And for us this morning, have, have you heard the good commandments of God only to reject them? The good command that God has about sexual purity and God's design for sexuality between one man and one woman in marriage. The good command to not cheat or to steal. We, we could go on, but suffice it to say, if the Ten Commandments were just followed, this world would be perfect. If we could keep these things, the world would be perfect. Have you ever found yourself now enslaved because of your own sin? Verse 12, So he subdued their heart with labor. They stumbled and there was none to help. Aspersion said, we see it once again, sometimes God will let your life get so brutally difficult so you can see what your need truly is for him. He, he let them get low so they could see what their truest need was. But then, there once again is a turn, a desperate cry for help. Verse 13 through 16, Then they cried out to Yahweh in their trouble, he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and he broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to Yahweh for his loving kindness and for his wondrous deeds to the sons of men. For he has shattered the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. How does God deal with those who spit in his face? How does he deal with those who spurn his wisdom when they cry out to him because they are slaves? He saves them. He brings them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he breaks their bands and he shatters the doors of bronze, whatever is holding them there, and he cuts through iron bars. They cry out to him and he saves and he does it like the father in Luke 15 does it for his prodigal son who ran away. He doesn't, he doesn't give him a long lecture. He doesn't even respond to all the pleadings that we say to him. What does he do? He forgives and he clothes with a robe. He saves slaves. He rescues them. One story I came across when studying this week was from a time that Pastor John MacArthur just read Psalm 107 in their service during the scripture reading. He just read this psalm. And unbeknownst to him, not because it was JMAC, but because it was the word of God, a man was sitting there who was an LGBT activist for years. And he had just found out that he had AIDS and was dying. And he said to one of his friends, overcome with the reality that he was going to die, I, I need to know God. I need to be right with God. And his friend said, well, I, I know that if you need that, you need to go to that church. 
So go there. You can figure out that out there, which I pray we could have that kind of a reputation in our community. If you want to know how to be made right with God, go over there. And the man was sitting in the congregation. He just heard these words read. And he heard about a God who could break his chains of slavery. He heard about a God who rescues sinners. And he started crying. He started weeping. And then he retells the story and says that, but then he left the pulpit. And then they sang more. And then he went and he taught for a really long time. And I was like, can this guy just get out of the pulpit? Because I just want to talk to somebody to be able to get saved, to be able to talk to someone about how I can be redeemed. But this is the power of our God, that he saves sinners, that he rescues slaves. And one important doctrinal truth to draw out of this section is that Christians are no longer slaves to sin. Romans 6 tells us we are no longer under the dominion of sin. Now that means, that means, well what that doesn't mean is that you won't still struggle with sin. We, before we get our new redeemed glorified bodies, we're still going to struggle, we're still going to be tempted to sin, but sin is no longer our master. This means, though we will struggle as we seek to put sin to death, we will be able to put it to death by the power of the Spirit, progressively, not simply on the up and up, but progressively, over time, Christians will put their sin to death. So no, if you are a Christian, you aren't a slave to sin. If you are a slave to sin, what needs to happen is you need to be saved. But Christians, having bands of slavery to sin broken and having the Lord Jesus Christ be their master now, are no longer slaves. By the power of the Spirit, over time, they will put sin to death. You've been bought with a price. Your chains have been broken. The next scene we see is that God saves sinners who are slaves and this third scene, God saves sinners who have self-destructed. Verses 17 and 18. Ignorant fools, because of their way of transgression and because of their iniquities were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food and they reached the gates of death. Jim Hamilton, one commentator on the Psalms, notes that whereas in the previous scene, sin is shown to result in slavery, here, sin is spoken of as resulting only in more folly and affliction. You need to know this. Sin leads to more sin. It's never just one more. And the final destination of all sin is the gate of death. And the sinners here, they're, they're in utter desperation. And have, have you ever been so low because of your sin that you lost your desire to eat? That's where these people are at. Their, their life is so ruined that they don't even care 
to take a next meal. Because what's the point? Have you ever felt the desperation of realizing your life is ruined and that you're the one who ruined it? And we need to know the world will every single time say it's not your fault. It's not on you. It's, it's other people's fault. And, and we really are sometimes sinned against in grievous ways. But each one of us, first and foremost, is a sinner. And left to ourselves, we have ruined our lives. And it's not on somebody else. Verse 19, then they cried out to Yahweh in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and provided them escape from their destructions. Do you see the goodness of God here? He saves those who have no business being saved. He saves them. He sends his word. He heals them. He provides escape from destruction. And think about what God did for his people in the Old Testament. He didn't elect Israel in the beginning because they were the most impressive. What does he say? You are the fewest of all people. And he didn't bring them out of Egypt because they would ace the desert test. And it's not because God had a lack of information. He didn't pick David because he was better than everyone else. Do you see the grace of God? He saves those who have no business being saved. He doesn't save those who start doing better. He doesn't save the deserving. And no sinner once saved by him can add something to God. It's not like he's envying something we have so that we would give it to him. What could we offer God but our sin? He saves by sheer grace so it is literally the worst news in the world that your life is ruined and you're the only one to blame for it ultimately and it is the greatest news that that is the only kind of person God saves and he does it and I love what it says about God sending his word he saves them. He sends his word and he heals them. So we can apply it this way. Once saved, would you want to be free of the sin that has ruined your life? That you've so despaired of? Then we take up his word and we say, how can I live according to this? We take it up. We study it. But every time, we must remind ourselves, God saved me and he sent his word. I didn't take up his word and then he decided to save me. Do you see the world of difference there? We come to him, we come to him having been redeemed. Verses 21 and 22. Let them, those who have ruined their lives and have nobody to blame but themselves, let them give thanks to Yahweh for his loving kindness and for his wondrous deeds to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and recount his works with joyful singing. Again, we have the refrain to give thanks 
to God for his loving kindness, for his steadfast love that doesn't end, endures forever. It doesn't run out. And then verse 22, these people are to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and to recount his works. How? With joyful singing. One of my deep hopes as a church is that our voices will be louder than the instruments that we have. See, the songs we pick, they're full of good theology. They're Christ-centered. They're all about God's grace as we sing, which is greater than all of our sins. And since it's Father's Day, my only point of application is this. Men and dads, let's lead the way in singing to our Lord, and to our God. Let's loudly and with joy sing to the one who saved us. Dads, let's make make sure our kids know we aren't ashamed of the gospel by the way that we sing. And regardless of ability, I'll tell you, every, well, most mornings, it should happen every morning, but I need need Deb to give the first note because I'm going to give the wrong note in the wrong tone in the wrong tune every single morning that we do family worship but let's sing loudly to our God let's sing to him young men let's have our confidence be in the Lord in the maker of heaven and earth God saves sinners so let's praise Christ God saves the wanderers on the earth he saves slaves and he saves sinners and now we come to the other half of the sandwich we come to the sea god saves seafarers verses 23 through 27 those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on many waters they have seen the works of yahweh and his wondrous deeds in the deep he spoke and set up a stormy wind which raised up the waves of the sea They went up to the heavens, and they went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in the calamity. They staggered and swayed like a drunken man, and all their wisdom was swallowed up. This speaks of those who make their living by working on the sea. It speaks of those who return to the land across seas. Isaiah speaks of these people who are going to come back to the land of the Lord. And we also, as we read these scenes, we can't help but think of some other biblical stories, right? The story of Jonah who goes down and he goes down into the sea and he goes down into the boat. And what happens? There's a storm. And on the, on the boat, who are the ones crying out to God? It's the sailors who don't even know God, crying out for mercy and saying, Jonah, do you have a God that can save? Do you have one? Why haven't you been praying? Can't help but think of Jesus and his disciples, where with a word, Jesus stilled the storm. Here, we're instructed that we should praise God for the way he preserves our lives. It's good and right to praise God for these things, for near-miss car accidents, for storms, for robberies that we survive. We should think upon these things and we we should thank God for his care for us. God's care for his people is comprehensive. Verse 28, 
And let's just, I, I just want to draw out for a second, just think about the immensity of the trouble they're in. It says that the waves went up to the heavens and they went all the way down to the depths. And what happened? They staggered like drunken men. If you have ever been out on a boat on the water, I've never even been in a storm and I was staggering and I couldn't get my sea legs about me. And what happens when we encounter this kind of nature? All of our wisdom is dried up. What do we have to say? What, 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 what formulas have we come up with that can save us in that moment? Verse 28, Then they cried out to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to stand still, so that its waves were hushed. They were glad because they were quiet, so he led them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to Yahweh for his loving kindness and for his wondrous deeds to the sons of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. I love what John Piper said reflecting on nature. He said, God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. And as we're out in nature and we encounter the violence that can just be in God's creation, we start to feel really small. And we realize how enormous and immense our God is. But not all those who have been delivered from trouble are redeemed in the soteriological sense, as one writer said. Christians, we should praise God for his protection and his deliverance. But I want you to know, if you, are, if you are not right with God, if you are not a Christian, and he has spared your life, not everything is good. That was but a mere warning shot that you should repent of your sin and turn to Christ. He didn't spare your life so you could go on living without him. God spares the lives of those so they would turn to him. As Jesus said about the Tower of Siloam, it fell and killed some people, but not because those people were worse, but so that we would all know if we don't repent, something worse will happen to us. And in this whole spread of these four stories, from those wandering in the desert and hungry and thirsty and the slaves and the sinners and then on the sea and, and God with a word stilling the storm, I can't help but think of the scene in Mark 6 where Jesus is teaching a crowd of people. And he teaches them until really late in the night. And then Mark says that the place was desolate. It was like a barren wasteland. And there was nothing to eat. And, and Jesus, he had compassion on the people. And so what did he do? He multiplied just a little bit of bread and fish to feed thousands and he had compassion on them and he was teaching them and then Jesus went away and his disciples got on a boat and as they were on the boat a storm started in the middle of the sea and Jesus came walking on the water and they saw him and they thought he was a ghost and they cried out God save us and he got on to the boat and then he stilled the storm 
And they marveled and they were afraid and they didn't understand. And what Mark says is they didn't understand because they, they hadn't gained any insight about the loaves of bread. And it's such an odd statement at first. And what's going on there? Well, it was all of the works of Jesus had actually one end in sight. His feeding people in the desert and his stilling the storms were all pointing to the fact that this man is not just a man, but he is God. And he has come to save people from their sins. And so this psalm is even reflective of the great Lord Jesus Christ. That he does care for those in the desert and feed them. And he does still storms. But what it's really ultimately about is that he is here to set slaves free. And is here to heal those of their sins who have self-destructed. And so this psalm can't help but remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of his work on the cross. Of how he gave himself for slaves. Of how he had his hands fastened to a cross of how he was destroyed on that cross in his humanity for those who have destroyed their own lives by sinning. But he wouldn't stay there. He would rise from the dead. And that is the reason these people had hope, and this is why we have hope today. So we praise God for his loving kindness, both in what he has done and, secondly, what he can do. For what, praise the Lord for what he can do. Verses 33 through 42, and we'll walk through these quickly. Now here, before we jump into verse 33, here commentators mark a difference between the first half of the psalm and the second half. The first half seems to be just like other psalms of thanksgiving. And that's self-explanatory, right? But the second half, it seems to be what, some will call a wisdom psalm. And so what we have here are theological truths about God that then instruct us of how to live wisely before him. And the grand theme of all these verses, these next two paragraphs or stanzas is this. Yahweh is able to reverse anything. Yahweh is able to reverse anything. And we see it both in the fertility of the land and in the estates of man. So first, let's look at how God can change the fertility of land. Verse 33 to 38. He makes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the evil of those who inhabit it. He makes a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. And there he causes the hungry to inhabit so that they may establish an inhabited city and sow fields and plant vineyards and produce a fruitful harvest. Also, he blesses them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease. So Yahweh is able to both turn deserts to streams of living water and to turn vast waters into deserts. The point is we shouldn't look at anything in life and think it's just not touchable by God. And we are, as the redeemed, as the redeemed of the Lord who should praise God, we are to now live our whole lives knowing that God is in charge and he's able to reverse all things. 
And the psalmist, he links the condition of the land in relation to how people should live. That's what makes this a wisdom portion. What's being done here, it's it's evoking a language of Deuteronomy, where God promised that if his people were faithful to him, the land would be fruitful and abundant and truly flowing with milk and honey. And it speaks of a future renewed creation where deserts would blossom. Instead of weeds being all around, there would be vineyards springing up. And as Israel is returning from exile, he's saying God is able to do this. He can do this. So the psalmist, he's using a theological truth about God and what he can do and what he will do in order to instruct us how to live today. It's a specific truth. God is able to do all these things that leads to general wisdom. The truth is God is sovereign over all things. So God can reverse the conditions from barrenness to fruition and from fruition to barrenness. And God will one day make this earth as fruitful as it was always meant to be. Since God is able to do all those things and he will do them, how ought we then to live? That's the point. Remember the Israelites are coming back into the land which they've been sent out of because of unfaithfulness. Having been redeemed, how ought they to live? Yahweh says, because those people are wicked, their fruitful land is going to become a desert. I can do that. And how, how do we want to live now? Having been fed and freed and forgiven by God, how ought we to live? Not only can God change the land, but God can also change the estates of man. Verses 39 through 42. But when they decrease and are bowed down through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt upon nobles and makes them wander in a pathless void. But he sets the needy securely on high, away from affliction, and makes his families like a flock. The upright see it and are glad, but all unrighteousness shuts its mouth. We saw what God can do to land because of faithfulness or unfaithfulness, and here the estates of man are addressed. And the point is well summed up with another Bible verse, that God exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. So we, in hearing these things, we shouldn't ever think that wickedness will ultimately prevail. Don't think that God has nothing to say and do about corrupt politicians in this world, about evil, injustice, and oppression. Don't look at what you see right now and think that's the way that it's always going to be. God sees this in all of his people. He's able to reverse it in a second, and he's surely going to do it one day. And so we should live all of life before his face. In light of that future hope, how ought we now to conduct ourselves? The last thing we need to talk about is to consider the loving kindnesses of Yahweh. Verse 43, Who is wise? Let him keep these things. 
and carefully consider the loving kindnesses of Yahweh. And I love how the psalmist ends. Wisdom, where does it come from? From considering the grace of God. And notice the plural of loving kindness used. He says, think over these things. And contextually, this immediately refers to the reversals. We should think about the fact that God is able to change everything in this universe. And he's really going to one day do it. That God will bless the righteous. That he will humble the wicked and the proud. And so as we go through life, remember God is able to reverse any fortune. And that his eye sees everything. Think over these things but also carefully remember, carefully consider the covenantal love of Yahweh and the plural, manifold ways his kindness and grace has been shown to you. Don't think the grace of God is a one-note thing. It's the loving kindnesses. It's, it's every single scene of redemption in supplying our needs, in giving grace to sinners, in forgiving us of our debt, in breaking the chains of our slavery to sin, in salvaging the lives of those who have self-destructed through their own choices, in bringing us safely home through the passages of this life. Give thanks to the Lord, for His loving kindness endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. May we daily think upon his graces and may we have the story of his redemption on our lips. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for what you did. We praise you for forgiving sinners, for freeing us of our slavery to sin, for healing our lives for making us a new creation in you. And God, what can we do but praise you now? Lord, help us to take up your word, to be instructed by it, to live a life informed by your grace. But will we never stop considering the loving kindnesses you have shown us? You have changed our lives forever. You have redeemed us and called us by name. Would we praise you and tell others of the God who saves and of the redemption that you have wrought through your Son. Put us all in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.